This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Player Tone Shifts. Tradecraft in the News. Pulp Movies. And the Great Boston Molasses Flood. It has come to pass. The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now. Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world. The new edition has a completely new character creation system. Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state. The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world. And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong. Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone. Buy them individually, or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Because Unknown Armies is there, right now. So now, briefly, before we uh, begin the meat of the podcast, it's time for a little mini hut, and that hut is the most exciting of huts, for it is the contest hut. And now, uh, you've already fallen out of your seats in excitement and the mere thought of there being a contest, but get back in your seats and get ready to fall out of your seats yet again, because this contest is our opportunity to pay tribute to the great Sandy Peterson, a uh, a towering figure in the history of tabletop role-playing, who a couple of years ago jumped back into the world of tabletop role-playing, much to our excitement, right, Ken? Exactly. Not only did he create the greatest role-playing game of all time, Call of Cthulhu, writing some of the greatest scenarios and other material for Call of Cthulhu, he also, in his spare time, invented the dice pool engine, uh, along with Greg Stafford, in the Ghostbusters role-playing game, which is also, by the way, a great role-playing game. So, if you were thinking, gosh, I like Call of Cthulhu and dice pools and role-playing and the career of Ken, I would also like Sandy Peterson. That's what you're thinking to yourself right now. Like, nay, love Sandy Peterson. Yes, n- neither of us would probably be here were it not for uh, Sandy. And Sandy is back, and of the various awesome things he's doing at Peterson Games, the most obviously, titanically awesome is Cthulhu Wars. And guess what? Uh, Peterson Games is currently kickstarting Cthulhu Wars Onslaught. Three And I think a lot of you already know Cthulhu Wars, uh, and all you needed to hear, if you didn't already know, uh, was that there's another Cthulhu Wars Kickstarter going now. Uh, but for those who don't know, it's his amazing board game, which... Uh, of its features, uh, number one, it's it's just freaking awesome. Yes. Number two, Ken. Number two, you you said uh, it's the most obvious of his activities. The reason it's obvious is it has giant, cool Cthulhu Mythos miniatures in it. Some of them inches tall. They're 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 not even miniatures. They're macrochures. Yes. Factories in China had to figure out new ways of manufacturing in order yes. to make these. They had minis. to use non-Euclidean geometries on the molds. I suspect. Yes. And when you and I, Ken, were we whippersnappers imagining that cool Cthulhu minis could possibly exist. Could we imagine anything as cool as the ones in this game? Like, they're just awesome in and of themselves. But also, the game itself has this great asymmetric strategic play where the faction you pick to uh, run rampant over the world and finish off destroying it and defeat all of your other Cthulhu uh, enemies has its own unique strategy, and all of them work, and they interact together in a really uh, cool way. And also, the game is... uh, When you see it laid out, you go... Oh my goodness, this is obviously going to be like a four or yeah, five, six hour forever. game. But it takes like 90 minutes for four players, including setup and of course destroying the world at the end. You look at Cthulhu Wars and you think, oh, it's Cthulhu Risk, which is already great. But no, it's even better than that because it's if Risk were good and if Risk <laughs> were fast. And both yeah. of those things happen on the board of Cthulhu Wars because the scale of the game and the and the degree of, of power that you possess turns the game into a knife fight in a closet. It's really great, and it's really 
uh, scary and fun while it's happening because it's super fast paced and you make a decision and, and you're already, your, your information loop is already, uh, obsolete by like the next turn. So you have to amp it up or die. So, uh, to spread the word about, uh, the Cthulhu Wars Onslaught 3 Kickstarter, uh, Peterson Games is, uh, making some prizes available to our Patreon backers. So the prizes are, uh, four rare glow in the dark yellow king figures. So four people will win. And I hear that these cost like an arm and a leg and possibly part of a soul if you try and get them on eBay. You can't get them on eBay because the only people who would have a glow-in-the-dark Yellow King figure are people who would have true love in their heart. Right. Uh, But you who have true love in your heart for both uh, Cthulhu Wars Onslaught 3 and this podcast, on the Friday that this drops, we will post a uh, patron's post on our Patreon backer page and... Uh, you can enter the contest simply by telling us something that you know about Cthulhu Wars Onslaught as a comment on that post. If, if you don't know anything, just post, this is an awesome game because it's by Sandy Peterson. Yes, or possibly go to their Kickstarter page and find something out. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, just leave a, a comment on that post. I'm just saying we will accept it's awesome because Sandy, that's that's an acceptable post. I suppose yeah. so. And so at any rate, leave a comment, perhaps putting your own original spin on that uh, line that Ken has given you, <laughs> and you'll be entered into a draw to be one of the four lucky winners of a rare glow-in-the-dark Yellow King figure, uh, which you can use to play Cthulhu Wars, or you can just put it on your dashboard to declare your allegiance to Carcosa. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And today in the gaming hut, the minis are carrying Glocks, the Doritos are uh, spicy nacho cheese because they're bloody red, and uh, the dice... Well, it's not so much a rattle as a clack because there's only one die six. We're playing Knights Black Agents in the gaming yeah. hut. In and other Peter words... Peter Frampton works for the Guardian and he's about to be assassinated. He's befanged. That weird voice is vampiric magic, not regular auto-tune, or even primitive auto-tune. Anyhow, we're getting away from the topic, as raised by Patreon backer Travis Johnson, who asks, My Knights Black Agents players voted for a dust mode game, but whenever violence is in the offing and they feel threatened, they revert to run-and-gun mode, doing things like using preparedness to produce a white phosphorus grenade. I'm happy to go with the flow as long as everyone is having fun. But I'm prepping for one type of game at their behest and effectively running another. How do I enforce tone at the gaming table without coming down too heavily? And that would be the generic question hidden within the beautiful game-specific specifics of Travis's no-doubt excellent Knights Black Agents campaign. Robin, do you have thoughts on tone specific to Knights Black Agents or otherwise? Right. Uh, Well, first of all, I think we've uh, talked about this before, but because Patreon backers are still asking about it, it is a perennial topic. So uh, we will uh, bat it around uh, yet again. And I think the angle we can take on it this time is know the difference between what your players say they want and what they demonstrate that they want through their actions. So it may very well be that Ken's cool, exciting description of how dust mode works when you read it in the book and have it presented to you is the alluring one because it's sort of more the the high-toned one. It's the sort of John le Carre uh, based uh, idea. And it sounds like the most sophisticated uh, of the choices. So that if you have a, a group of players who sort of, uh, I think your players are aspiring to A, but when they're sitting around uh, four weeks later into the campaign, having fun, feeling loose, uh, they actually want to revert more to sort of the gaming mean, uh, which is to play it loose and crazy and fun. And so uh, do you really want to enforce the tone they said they wanted, or do you want to accept what the group dynamic has done in terms of changing the tone of your game? So you can look at it as sort of a, you know, you're four episodes into a TV series and there's been a, a bit of a course correction, and now the real tone has emerged. So I suppose you could go nuts and say to your players, do you really want to do dust mode? But that would be cheating, right? That would be the end of this segment. Yeah. I mean, uh, so uh, communicating with your players is obviously that's too radical and strange and it never happens. Yeah. People communicate with their players. They won't need this segment if of this podcast If we could communicate ever. with players, 
if we could somehow reach their alien, <laughs> inhuman, dolphin-like minds, so many problems could be solved. But for now, we must simply hope that the, the clackings and squeakings and the beautiful song of their language can be deciphered by means of high-powered supercomputers. But it can't be done. It can't be done. They're too different. Too different and beautiful. So, Ken, as, as the uber maestro of uh, Night's Black Agents, of course, your players would never deviate from a pre-established uh, tone or... or you know, monkey up a, a white phosphorus grenade. Heaven uh, forfend. Uh, yes. But uh, assuming a, a, a less recondite, uh, more uh, a, a lumpen proletariat group of players who, who would who would do such a thing, uh, would you correct them or would you go with the flow? I think that Travis has sort of answered his own question when he says he's happy to go with the flow as long as everyone is having fun. Right. But once again, that would end this segment prematurely. Right. But I think that there are things you can do that will reemphasize some of dust while keeping the action crazy. And again, you can, uh, for example, raise the difficulty of a preparedness test to get something that is out of genre as well as, or out of mode as well as unlikely. So um, unless someone's got an MOS of preparedness, oh, those clever players, um, then you can simply say, well, if this were a standard mode game, sure, that would be difficulty five, but as it is, it's dust, so it's difficulty eight, and they have to spend a little extra to really want a white phosphorus grenade. Right, and indeed, in Yellow King, uh, one of the things I do to enforce tone across the four different settings is actually the difficulties of certain things do change across the settings, because the whole point of Gumshoe is to emulate things, not to uh, simulate any particular reality. So it's easier to kill things in the wars than it is in the modern, supposedly our real world uh, horror setting. So you, uh, if you don't have a precedent for that now, uh, and Ken's merely telling you that you could do that, uh, it doesn't serve as a precedent. That is also uh, coming. So absolutely, change difficulty numbers to reflect the uh, mode and tell players that they can expect that to be the case. Another thing that you can do is uh, simply accept that the rest of the game will be dust mode. The combats will be high, crazy, furious action, sort of like in, uh, is it John Hillcoat, the director of, uh, the proposition? Yes. But the, 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 the story of that movie and the filming of that movie and the tone of that movie are all very realist and straightforward. And the action is super loud, super fast and super cinematic. Uh, it's not cinematic in the sense that it t goes on forever and there's lots of balletic leaping around, but it's the sort of, you know, white phosphorus grenade in my, in my pocket type action that terrifies and scares as yeah, you, as you watch it. Super shocking, sudden violence. Right. Um, or even closer to the espionage genre, a film we both love and talk about a lot, Haywire, right. uh, by Steven Soderbergh, has a dusty sort of feeling and atmosphere, but when the action starts, the action is all v very bravura in different ways for each action sequence. Right. And so, yeah, rewatch Haywire. I think that, along with talk with your players, that may be universal advice for every problem. <laughs> I'm I'm bored. Rewatch Haywire. I'm yep. sleepy. Rewatch Haywire. Whatever your problem is, do that. We're nothing if not about service journalism here. Exactly. And, and so you can emphasize, for example, the consequences after that grenade goes off. Uh, they've burned up all the evidence. They've, you know, been injured themselves in the explosion. That happens. Uh, that's more of a, of a dust thing than a, than a high action mode born thing. Uh, they, you know, the, their heat goes up literally and figuratively in mechanics terms. The fire department is on the way. You can enforce sort of the austerity of the setting of a dust game, even if the combats aren't loud and noisy. And in fact, by having the other characters in the game, the supporting cast, the, 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 the authorities, the forensic examiner who you do in a cutscene, describe the horrific violence involved. And one hopes that the players are mostly fighting vampires. You can say, Oh my gosh, there, this is something unnatural that's breaking into our, our dusty world because of the actions of these vampires. And, you know, play into it as opposed to trying to play against it, but use keep the rest of your game at the dust tone that you and the players want to do and just know that the combats are going to be fast and brutal. And of course, the other thing is if players are trying to grab a uh, white phosphorus, I hope you haven't been holding back when the vampires do attack them, but since the players aren't, the vampires shouldn't, you know, start spending those um, uh, guaranteed hits on the first attack when the vampires attack, you know, give spend three points of their, uh, 
of of their uh, hand to hand to uh, go after the the characters and just rip their legs off and beat them to death with them. Use that vampiric strength to um, uh, increase damages. Use the vampiric speed to go first and to and to attack multiple characters in one round. Once the once the characters or the players have signaled what they want is brutal intense combat. Provide brutal intense combat and then. Maybe they will begin to say, you know what we should be doing? More of these secretive ambush and hide far away type combat. And then suddenly you're back closer to dust mode. Right. Because in the uh, the world of John le Carre, there are operations that go hideously sideways. They're just the, those are the things that George Miley then has to come in and clean up. <laughs> yeah. You just read about those as, as the cock up that he has to fix rather than the thing that the uh, main characters do. So uh, you could... Uh, if you want to be really radical about this in a way that I um, anti-recommend, you could have the white phosphorus grenade go off and then cut to you're all in the hospital six months later uh, and George Smiley or, of course, your George Smiley equivalent comes in and, uh, well, here's what's happened to the world in the six months since the Lugano affair went wrong. And uh, you can go from there. I mean, six months is a little extreme even for a, a Willie Pete grenade. But still, you know, the, the notion of flash. Well, then you have to figure out what <laughs> what else went wrong during your memory hole. Oh, right. As, as a result of, of the of the disaster. Yeah. I mean, I think you can you can cer- you can certainly imply that that, again, is maybe something that Robin only said to indicate the level of uh, danger and seriousness with which other dust mode characters take the incident as opposed to uh, recommending it for play. I did say anti-recommend. Yes, unless your characters are, are really, really willing to put things in your hands and trust you entirely. And so few players are like that, I find. Well, at the, uh, I think we're at the risk of ourselves having a phosphorus grenade go off and then wake up uh, half a year later wondering uh, what happened well, to this where question? those episodes <laughs> So I think it's time to uh, sneak in, in ever stealthy Sir Alec Guinness mode uh, through this next commercial and find out what... A undoubtedly innocent, non-espionage-related segment waits for us on the other side. Hey, Robin, what you working on these days? Thanks to the Kickstarter for the Yellow King role-playing game, I now have... 40-plus stretch goals worth of additional material to create and or oversee. Yellow King, Yellow King, is that the game of weird horror in which players portray interconnected sets of characters in four different weird realities, all investigating the reality-warping activities of its titular monarch? None other, Ken. Would that game also include the innovative new take on the beloved gumshoe system, which adds such cool new features as faster player-facing combat and the vivid status effects of shock and injury cards? Yep, that's the one. And is that hideous wailing I hear the collective lamentation of gamers who, for whatever reason, were unable to back the Kickstarter? Yeah, sure sounds like it. Have you and our friends at Pograin Press considered leaving it open for pre-order for those who want to get in on the initial shipment and get a deal almost as special as that captured by original backers? Why, thank you for asking that question. The question I scripted for you, Ken. Does that mean listeners, in fact, can pre-order the Yellow King role-playing game by following a link in the show notes? It sure does, and you know what else it means? What? You may now discard a shock card. A shock card? I didn't know I had a shock card. A shock card? Oh... The Yellow King role-playing game pre-order. Follow the link in the show notes and discard a shock card. The background check that you had to go through, and of course the retinal scan, tell us that we've once more entered the top secret environs of the Tradecraft Hut. And Ken, uh, I've been on vacation for a week, and then before that I had four solid weeks of a Kickstarter, so... Unlike my usual self, I wasn't really following the news very much, but it's summer, so not much could have possibly happened in the news in general, or certainly even in the world of espionage. So, Ken, just in case something happened, you want to catch me up? Um, well, you know, uh, I believe that there were rumblings of discontent in the um, uh, French uh, espionage community over Macron's attempt to uh, rein in the military. Obviously, there's the ongoing question of Estonia. I think that probably the Chinese are up to something um, in in the, the the Korea and Philippine situations. And oh, there was a little bit of thing with the uh, president's son, but that that turned out to be nothing. That was just a meeting with a number of exciting characters, <laughs> only a few of whom were actual spies. Uh, it barely even made a ripple in the headlines, yeah. I feel. Yeah, the number of spies between 
you know, three and five. But yeah, but, you know, it's Russia. Pretty much everyone there is a spy, as it happens. And, and that was just about adoption, right? That wasn't about anything? Yeah, th- yeah, that's pretty much what it was. I, I think um, <laughs> uh, maybe Donald Trump Jr. had heard his dad talking about adoption and thought, I should get to the bottom of that instead of saying, I wish you were adopted, Donald Trump Jr., that I could <laughs> leave you for the, for, for uh, strangers to carry away. Yeah, who knows what he was saying? He's an, he's an a, a exciting fellow. But the situation was during the campaign. And as we know, because, you know, he's nothing if not transparent, our boy Donald Trump Jr., he tweeted out the emails that <laughs> he exchanged, which is a refreshing change of pace. I grant you, uh, most people go to the mats and then, start covering up but he's like well if if you're if you're working with the russians who's going to leak your emails if you don't do it yourself if you don't do it yourself turns out you can't trust the damn russians even to link leak an email so long story short uh he was approached by a uh russian handler actually i guess he was approached by his old buddy impresario rob goldstone who is quite a character and was yeah. the guy who managed the Miss Universe pageant when it was in, I want to say St. Petersburg. It was in Russia. Yes. And speaking of many hats, if you go <laughs> yes. online, do not, do not do <laughs> this. Even more hats idea. than we do, all of which are way more absurd than any of our hats. Yes, they are. They're hat excitement. As soon as I saw this cast of characters, my immediate thought was, I must get onto Twitter and observe that these are like the cast members of a Coen Brothers movie. And then as I got onto Twitter, it's like, Oh, everyone has observed Yes, everyone has already noticed this. And Goldstone, because he was a known quantity to Russians, um, because he had, like I say, managed the uh, Miss Universe pageant for the Trumps in Russia. I want to say he was approached by Emin Agalarov, but maybe he was approached by Natalia Veselnitskaya. Uh, Robin, do you have uh, firm information on that? Which one did the approaching? I'm not sure it's totally clear. Who went to Rob Goldstone to initiate this? Yeah. So, I mean, Agalarov is also not a spy. And, and as a matter of fact, very few of the sort of named uh, stars of this show are spies. Um, I mean, Agalarov it's is a family a business, though. Azerbaijani singer. <laughs> I think his dad may have dipped some toes in those waters. Yes. Right. Yeah. Again, I mean, this, this, this is better than a, than a Coen Brothers movie. This is a movie about a, a this is a, a beautiful rom-com. We just don't know who, I mean, Aglarov is going to meet in, uh, in the second act, but, uh, he's, you know, he, he's, uh, trying to get away from his, his, uh, dad, who is sort of an Azerbaijani, uh, what, what would you say? Oligarch, I guess, uh, zillionaire. And yeah. because again, business crime, and espionage in the Soviet bloc, the former Soviet bloc, are pretty much the same bunch of guys. And if they're not, if you're going to be an oligarch, you need to know crime and spy guys. And the crime guys are often the spy guys, or they hired the spy guys. And then when the spy guys came back, they hire the crime guys. So this crime espionage. This is does what not we call make it. it good, but it makes it normal. If that's the word I want to use. So yes. anyway, and, and by normal we mean like each member of the cast of characters is weirder than the other. Yes, uh, which I think is one of the reasons why they go well so well with the Trumps because right. they are exciting. Uh, also, <laughs> everyone in that orbit is weirder than the other one ne- sitting next to them, and they're so busy. Uh, the uh, borders between business and crime are perhaps not as sharply delineated as one might hope. So the 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 story goes. They bring in uh, this uh, high-powered Russian lawyer, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya, right? Yes. Right. And she... And, and by high-powered, we mean among her clients are the FSB. The FSB, yes. Well, that makes you a high-powered lawyer in, yeah. in, uh, in Russia. Although, I'm kind of gratified that the FSB has lawyers, frankly. That, that makes me feel that they're just a tiny bit more domesticated. You know, in the old days, I don't think the KGB had a lot of lawyers. I mean, they had American lawyers, but that was more in the lines of uh, bribed and coerced, not so much in the lines of just employed by. But anyway, the, 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 the good people uh, at Camerton Consulting, which is her company, are employed by the Russian government to set up meetings to overturn the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act was the law that was passed by healthy bipartisan majorities back in 2012 to replace the old Jackson Vanique Act, which was the act that said, until Russia gets its human rights house of cards in a row, uh, you can't do uh, certain kinds of business with Russia. Right. And named after a lawyer who was arrested and tortured for a year and then murdered because he uh, worked for an American client who threatened to expose a scam whereby the tax money paid 
by the American businessman to the Russian government was stolen. And uh, they, when they embarked on this mission of going to the Russian authorities about this, uh, they did not realize that part of that um, stolen tax money was going to Vladimir Putin. And so, uh, again, see previous discussion of the difference between uh, business, espionage, and criminality, and government all being the same thing in Russia. Right. And again, that, that lawyer was uh, Magnitsky, not Jackson or Vanik. Uh, right. Vanik was a dissident, and Jackson was a senator from Washington. So just to keep that clear. So the Magnitsky Act passes in 2012 by comfortably bipartisan majorities in the House and Senate uh, over the strident objections of the Obama administration. And since that time, Natalia Veselnitskaya has devoted her career to its overturn. Right. And so by lawyer, we mean lobbyist. Uh, well, lawyer, lobbyist, l- lobbyist. And again, yes. obviously, that is the kind of overlap that only happens in Russia, never in America. You don't have someone who is a lawyer and also a high-powered lobbyist. That right. would never, never happen. Um, and the... Uh, in response to the Magnitsky Act, Putin uh, levels a number of sanctions on the U.S., uh, the most uh, notoriously cruel of which is to prevent American uh, would-be adoptive parents from adopting kids from uh, Russia. And, of course, Russia, e- even at that time, would only allow very ill children to be adopted by American uh, parents. So those kids did not find other homes in Russia, but died. And so when you hear Junior say that he was just there to talk about adoptions, that's code for he was just there to talk about the Magnitsky Act. Right. And the over and the overturn thereof and the loosening of sanctions and uh, other restrictions. And what, of course, the emails tell us is that the uh, lure to lure Junior in was the promise of oppo on Hillary. Right. To which uh, Senior, I must begrudgingly say amusingly, said... I didn't need Oppo and Hillary. I was just making a bunch of stuff up anyway. Yeah, well, uh, there you go. <laughs> and and as it transpired, he did not, in fact, need Oppo on Hillary. So there you go. <laughs> uh, well, I think the Oppo on Hillary uh, sunk Hillary, so it was pretty uh, pretty effective. But well, uh, that, that that's one theory, sure. So putting on your uh, role playing hat uh, and uh, imagining yourself being the FSB handler that was uh, managing this operation, what was your intention? in uh, making contact with Don Jr.? Well, I think there's a couple of, uh, of possibilities, and we can go through them. The one is that they wanted to get a promise to overturn the Magnitsky Act out of Don Jr. to then, you know, use that. That would be sort of the surface purpose. And again, if you set up a meet, right, as a spy, you don't have a pretend thing that you're doing and a real thing. You have real thing and a real thing inside the other real thing. Because you can't set up a meet to say buy stamps and then not buy stamps. You're still buying the the stamps. So right. the the surface uh, reason to have the meet, which is to uh, lobby for the overturn of the Magnitsky Act, certainly is part of it, right? That's what happens. The second part would be possibly to make contact with our old buddy Paul Manafort, who at the time was campaign manager, although who stopped being campaign manager very, very soon after this meeting, I believe. And uh, Paul Manafort, of course, uh, it was taking all kinds of money from Ukrainian interests. And so the question of, are you attempting to outbid the Ukraine for Paul Manafort? Are you bringing the next payment? What's going on with Paul Manafort is another part of this meeting. Uh, or at the very least, you may be exchanging some words with Paul saying, Back off the Ukraine right. or else the kid gets it or whatever. W- weren't Manafort's, wasn't Manafort's Ukrainian money pro-Russian Ukrainian though? Um, you know what? Uh, that's true. It was for Yanikovych. Y- right. So, uh, it might have just been to drop off the next bunch of money or to engage in some other sort of connective tissue with Paul Manafort, who we know is, uh, at the very least, uh, willing to take Money and instruction from people who take money and instruction from Putin. So that's another possibility. And the final possibility, which is the possibility for which, sadly, we have no actual evidence, is that, indeed, this was the place at which Putin's shadowy agents did a handshake deal to uh, swing the election or whatever else. Again, because, A, this is not the FSB's first day at the beach, and second, because this is not where it would have happened, even if it happened at a giant public meeting at Trump Tower. There's no indication that that actually happened. So that's what, however, has gotten Twitter all excited uh, over and above the fact that, as you say, it is a delightful Coen Brothers uh, cast 
uh, table read that's going on there. But even just the fact that he's ready to show up for the meeting, uh, you know, if you're feeling out the other side and deciding to what extent it is possible to cultivate or to continue to cultivate them, uh, that tells you uh, a lot. So where do you think when uh, a couple years down the line where we know more of the full story, is this going to be a sort of a, a crucial uh, crack in the dam or is this going to be a footnote? Well, I mean, it depends on a, if anything ever comes out of it. Uh, but if, uh, if, because you can't, I mean, you're sort of, it's a tautology. You say, if Trump winds up being impeached over this meeting, what do you think people will say? It's like, well, I don't know. Well, I, I don't know if he's uh, going to be impeached, but I think right. we are going to know a lot of what happened. Yeah. I think, well, I think that that's certainly possible. I mean, there are plenty of things we don't know a lot about even, you know, decades later, we only just, well, found for out- example, we know a lot about Watergate now. Right. Yeah. And I think that before you and I are, are dead, you know, drowned by the, angry polar bears taking revenge for uh, global warming that we will know a bunch more about this. So how big a thing as a student of espionage do do you think this is? Speak for yourself, Canada. We're going to have a wall. (laughs) I think that this is going to, you know, be part of the ongoing climate because it is part of the ongoing climate, but without knowing what actually transpired at the meeting, I can't speculate. Does this, is is this a, a big, important deal or is this just, one of the times that um, uh, Nixon and Chuck Colson met and agreed that fried chicken was better when it was made by um, uh, uh, someone in the great state of Alabama as opposed to those Yankee communists up in Massachusetts or whatever, right? I mean, we don't know because we don't know the the substance of it. It, it right. might have been just a straight-up um, uh, lobbying attempt in the context of ongoing pressure. It might have been, you know, the 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 uh, the smoking gun if, if something comes out. But uh, I have... I have learned that speculating ahead of the, uh, of the reveals is a great way to look like an idiot. Um, and certainly right now, a lot of people speculated that this was going to be the smoking gun. And it turned out, no, it kind of wasn't because again, uh, the, it's not the FSB's first day at the beach and they don't have smoking gun meetings at Trump tower with, uh, cameras going. I'm pretty sure. Right. Because, uh, one half of this equation is as dumb as a bag of rocks. Yes. <laughs> but it's not the Russian part. It's not the Russian half. Okay. Well, uh, that doesn't require speculation. So let's end on that note. And uh, I'm sure that nothing else will happen in this story. And we will never have to revisit it in the trade practice. Ever again. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods! Runepunk Steam Quests! Lamb Chop Love Songs! And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian! All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers, exactly like... Paul S. Enns. Tenet Reed. Wesley Griffin. Alex Johnston. And Peter Nix. The whir of the projector, the dust motes dancing in the air, and the smell of popcorn drifting to our nostrils welcomes us past something sticky that we're not sure what that is into our comfortable seats in the cinema hut. And in the cinema hut, 
Patreon backer Nancy Feldman has asked us to describe, perhaps, our favorite pulp movies. Uh, this is not so much a pulp movie 101, because I think even by the loose and forgiving standards of genre studies, pulp cinema is just essentially cinema that is based on material that either appeared or could have appeared in the original pulp magazines. And right now, Jess Nevins is rising from his chair to see if I misdefined pulp magazines. And um, <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, because this is really a segment where we could spend 14 minutes defining what pulp means for this particular purpose right. and then quickly rattle off a bunch of film titles. But by the, by the magic of modern-day prototype theory, we can say pulp is that class of stuff that is like the shadow and Doc Savage and move on happily with our lives. Right. So basically stuff that is adjacent to or directly related to the hero pulps, because of course pulp magazines included horror and romance and, and, and uh, in, in many cases, noir uh, movies came out of pulp crime and pulp exactly detective. So. And we're not going to redo the noir hut, uh, the, the noir one on one hut, although that would be a fun hut to do again. Right. Um, and, and after we narrow it to things that feel kind of like, uh, adventure hero pulps, uh, we've narrowed it to, uh, a very few titles indeed, because, uh, the thing about the classic pulp characters is that they do not currently have sort of a wide cachet, and people don't remember those characters. Uh, they don't have the same resonance that, uh, you know, your Spider-Mans and your Batmans, or even, you know, previous heroes like, uh, Sherlock Holmes or, uh, Tarzan, people just don't know the shadow or the phantom or, uh, Doc Savage. And so, uh, there are very few films that really derive from that spirit. And the ones that do derive from that spirit take as much, if not more, from the serials, uh, which ran at about the same time the pulp magazines were being published and used the same cliches and tropes as they did from the pulp magazines themselves. So that having been said, let's start with the obvious one. The Indiana Jones series. Exactly. Is probably the, archetypal, actual good, or 50% good, or if you're feeling generous, 66% good <laughs> series of pulp-inspired adventures. And that definitely, you know, Indiana Jones, we can imagine him uh, being the uh, star of a bunch of uh, pulp magazines, and it uh, actively evokes that as well as evoking uh, Saturday morning Serial. So that's the obvious one. What's the next most obvious one? Well, once you've said Indiana Jones, then we remember good old Brendan Fraser in The Mummy and in The Mummy sequel, which was not as terrible as you thought it was going to be. Um, and then the series really drops off a cliff. But let's just think about Brendan Fraser and how much fun we had watching him in The Mummy and how great it was to see someone get, I would say, 90% of the Indiana Jones formula correct in making The Mummy. Now, the uh, his character was more of a sort of comic hero. He was competent, but he was not the degree of sort of grimly competent that Indiana Jones is. That is and so as a result of his sort of playing a little bit against that heroic type, um, it's less like the pulp adventurer, the adventurer pulps, but it, I think, makes for superior tension during the film, which is good because Stephen Summers is, in theory, making a horror movie. I mean, it only happens sporadically, but he does remember he's doing it every now and again. Right. So, it's, it's a horror adventure movie. And yes, the, the, the Brendan Fraser character does not seem like an iconic hero who is continually recapitulating his iconic nature through a series of adventures. But this is the first weird thing that he's ever run into. And then the sequel is, oh, no, the weird thing has come back. Right. Uh, but definitely the, the spirit of uh, sort of fun and craziness and the... Uh, a lawn of that uh, film and the style of it, which is very difficult to pull off, which is why, again, there are very few films on this list. Uh, that's that's a great example. And also it, it helps that it's mise-en-scene is the 1920s and 30s, that sort of glorious era in which the pulp adventurer heroes were being consumed in their millions on the newsstands, not remembered by game designers and directors who then wonder why no one else remembers them. Right. Uh, so to go to one that's also in period and works to evoke the period, The Rocketeer. Yes. Uh, which, of course, is an adaption of a, a comic book that is quite consciously trying to evoke the sort of gee whiz, uh, do-gooder spirit of the uh, of the pulps and uh, is, I think, really effectively done and really captures the uh, kind of innocence of that era. And I guess... That is part of the reason why no one has yet 
announced a reboot, and when they do, they'll screw it up, so let's not remind them. Yes, yeah, let's let's move rapidly past. Uh, I think we can also, of course, in this context, talk about Big Trouble in Little China, which is another classic example of a uh, thing that is made based on things that are made based on the pulps. Right. And also, of course, wuxia films, so it's a, a bit of a, a genre blender there. Which come, again, out of the tradition of Chinese pulp adventure fiction, which is very big and very robust and almost completely unstudied by everybody. Um, but also, uh, comes out of the old, you know, uh, Sax Romer style, uh, yellow peril, uh, oriental menace, uh, pulps, which were a giant subgenre, or at least a pretty big subgenre of pulp fiction and is detourned beautifully by Carpenter making the actual hero of the film a Chinese American and his mystical sidekick being another Chinese American. And they defeat the evil, uh, Lopan with the, uh, let's call it assistance of Jack Burton. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Who, as you pointed out in a previous thing, does get some ceiling dropped on him at a crucial moment. Right. And, and again, uh, so now we're getting into the, the realm of, uh, pulp inspired things that are set in the present day or, you know, the present day when they were made. The contemporary And have time. a sense of sort of ironic, uh, recreation around them, which brings us to, uh, Buckaroo Banzai. And, uh, I've forgotten what the full length title of that adventures in the eighth dimension i think it yeah, is. right so anyway and that's very very consciously uh trying to create not just the idea of a uh, pulp milieu but the idea that you're watching uh episode 132 in a series of 279 <laughs> right about these characters very clearly kind of modeled on doc savage and his uh uh, gang of uh, sidekicks. Let me let and me ask you about Buckaroo Banzai because, of course, we both love Buckaroo Banzai. How recently have you rewatched Buckaroo Banzai? Have you watched it as a as an adult consumer of film? Uh, yeah, a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, did you find as I did that virtually all the work in that movie is being done by the acting and this and the script, and that everything else is being carried on their backs across a the seemingly endless treeless plane. Uh, well, the acting in the script is a pretty good, big, yeah, no, I mean, and it's, it's not it's even so much the acting as the actors. It feels like an eighties film. Yeah. Uh, with that sort of, uh, you know, if we go back and look at a lot of our treasured eighties films, including big trouble, uh, there are things about the pacing of them that don't, uh, fit what we currently have today, which yeah. is both good and bad. And I think by script, I only mean dialogue. I don't actually mean script <laughs> because the story is uh, shambolic at best. I think because it is a meta thing that it still worked for me, that it feels like the story is being made up as it goes along, yeah. which is not actually the history of that film. What happened is that the, like the original Ghostbusters screenplay, the original screenplay for Buckaroo Banzai was even bigger and more complicated <laughs> and got sort of boiled down, uh, which accounts for why it seems like, uh, but if you want to evoke the pulps, yeah. uh, the, the great pulp writers didn't, you know, outline that much or go back. You can <laughs> or, see or on the page where they're making stuff up as they yes. go along, just like Dennis Wheatley does, uh, in the British. Tradition. And, and, and maybe the difference is that WD Richter is, is no Ivan Reitman. And that's just the the way the world has to be. And sometimes I, it, it, I, I, I was less disenchanted with it uh, th than you were, but it does have that eighties yeah. um, movie feel for sure. I would like to uh, give a shout out uh, on the list of things that are better than I thought they were going to be. Um, and I think by a long chalk um, is uh, the shadow, the 1994 Alec Baldwin movie, the shadow, which I watched out of grim determination to watch a movie called the shadow during my lifetime. And it turned out, while not, you know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China good, was still vastly better than it had any right to be, especially given the tire fire that was the movie of The Phantom. It did not work on me the way it worked on you, but I'm I'm glad you uh, liked it. Uh, one other sort of modern neo-pulp I'd like to mention is Dark Man, Sam Raimi. Yes. Uh, which uh, definitely is drawing on the tradition of the uh, the darker, uh, the the vengeful heroes in the in the pulp hero tradition so that's, that's the sort spider of, and people like that yeah the spider and the the avenger and uh, and even the shadow i think it's a uh and, and because it's drawing in horror imagery i think it's a, a a better version of the shadow than the shadow is and also it's not trying to uh, be old-timey and recreate uh the period and i think that's a lot of the uh flaw of, of the shadow is that it's uh distanced by its attempt to to recreate the the 30s 
there's a there, there's another contemporary pulp movie that I can't in good conscience recommend, but I found watching it super interesting, and it was the movie <laughs> of Remo Williams, which again, do not take this as this is a good movie, but Remo Williams was an attempt was was not an attempt. It was a super successful the successor to the pulp magazines are what are called men's adventure novels, men's adventure magazines. And then those became men's adventure paperback novels when the formats shifted. And in those adventure novels are such figures as Nick Carter Killmaster, who is the renamed or re uh, purposed rebooted version of Sherlock Holmes's old adventure rival, Nick Carter. And Nick Carter could be a topic all of his own, but, and also uh, very few good Nick Carter movies. And that there needs to be another good one, unless you count, uh, Guy Ritchie Sherlock Holmes movie is secretly a Nick Carter movie, which makes a lot more sense. Where was I? Ah, oh, yes. Um, so the, uh, the, the men's adventure, uh, not magazines begat the men's adventure series novels among them, the destroyer, uh, by Sapir and I think Johnston or Sapir and Murphy. And, uh, in the eighties, when people were making a lot of eighties movies, as you, uh, presciently pointed out, that is when most of the eighties movies were made. Not all of them. Uh, 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 drive, for example, as an eighties movie, uh, made just the other year. And, uh, we're all hoping atomic blonde is as well. Remo Williams is the movie based on that series. And because Fred Ward is again, playing sort of against expectation and against type for an eighties action hero. And because the, insanity of casting Joel Gray as Master Chun is more audacious and weird every time you see it. And again, I'm not saying good. I'm not saying uh, go out and again cast You're not a, approving of this. You're just describing elfin it. Broadway uh, mainstay as a Korean martial arts master. Don't do that. But when you're watching it, once someone has done it, you can't tear your eyes away from it because you can't believe what's going on. And I think it's that sense of heightened unreality of what's going on combined with Fred Ward's very earthy performance as uh, the titular Remo Williams, you get sort of an a, a very odd uh, blend of things. Yes, with that very hopeful subtitle, The Adventure Begins. Yes, right. Well, it, it began, and then we were, were not privileged to see the rest of it, because it was filmed. Uh, in space or in the human heart or somewhere. Um, and, uh, I thought I would close. Uh, so these are all pretty obvious choices because again, it's, it's a small corpus. So I was, uh, casting about for a deep cut and I'm going to mention, uh, this was, I talked about this uh, recently in uh, our text feature, Ken and Robin consume media secrets of the French police. Uh, this is a film made in 1932 by that, uh, famous auteur, Edward Sutherland. Oh, another Sutherland classic. Right. And it's an adaptation of a, a series of um, magazine articles or a, a serialized fiction in a magazine. So it is a contemporary within the period pulp adaptation. And Frank Morgan, that uh, famous Frenchman, uh, plays <laughs> a, a master detective uh, in the Sûreté in the uh, French police. And it starts off as a sort of a combination of uh, he, he's a master of disguise who gets all of his information by using his uh, gumshoe disguise ability. But then as it goes on, it takes on more of a forensic overtone. And so they're explaining things like fingerprints or like a police sketch artist and how that works. And, and so it's like, Oh wait, this is 1930 version of CSI. Okay. Uh, but then it all gradually becomes more weird and more surreal and more pulpy. So as they start to describe how uh, a sketch artist works, they have this giant uh, mural that's like uh, got to be about 30 feet tall in comparison to the actors. And they're just they're using uh, poles to stick various versions of the facial features up on the thing. So it, it takes on this sort of weird German expressionistic thing. And then it gets even crazier with a master villain. And there's a, a then sort of contemporary plot involved. The whole thing is about finding a uh, imitation Anastasia as the last Romanoff. So it has sort of a, a 1930s rip from the headlines sort of thing going on. But there's a master villain and a hypnosis plot and weird death traps. And it gets uh, stranger and stranger. So uh, that, of course, is a real uh, rarity. Uh, it, I saw this on TCM. Uh, Turner uh, Classic Movies. So if you uh, watch the listings to see when that shows up again, I would highly recommend that you uh, stick that on your PVR because for sure when they show it again, it'll be really late 
uh, at night the way it was when I, I recorded it. But it's a real sort of weirdo, uh, unheralded, uh, expressionistic gem that is, uh, if there had been more pulp movies rather than serials at the time, they would have been like that. And I think I will close with a actual serial based on a series of novels. Uh, so not at all in the spirit, in the uh, technical uh, meaning of the question, but I think entirely in its spirit, the Fantomas serials, which were made by uh, Louis Fouillade between 1913 and 1914. He made five uh, uh, Fantomas serials, and they've all been collected in a cool box set. And you can watch them on DVD. And uh, my good buddy Hal Mangold uh, got them for me for Christmas a couple of few years ago. And the the thing to watch there is how so much of our cinematic language of crime uh, movies begins in those serials, that they are hugely influential. And there are individual scenes, um, especially the scene in which blood is raining on uh, the, uh, audience at a, uh, and I believe it's, it, it's in a church. There's a scene where stuff is falling out of the, the church bell onto the audience and they're being terrified by it. Um, uh, that that's very, uh, powerful and was ripped off by hammer, um, uh, later on in one of the Dracula movies. And they, um, and, and stuff like that that is still super effective and super shocking today, like bits of Nosferatu that still work. Um, and because you haven't seen Fantomas to death, you're more surprised and intrigued and the storytelling, uh, rackets along, uh, for a, uh, certainly for a, for a silent film there, there's a great deal of story development and, uh, and it, it's very, it was very much best of breed in 1913 when Fouillard was making it in a lot of ways, it's still best of breed, but it has exactly that sort of sensibility that, uh, serial, uh, novel heroes share with the, the technical uh, adventure pulps. So I recommend tracking down that box set and watching the Fantomas Silence. Right. And also by Fouillard is uh, Les Vampires. Right. Uh, Which is, I, I found not as good. I liked it, but it was not as, uh, as, as zany, I thought. And as, and as uh, sort of wild and open, I thought that it seemed a little more closed off. Right. And that's the name of a bandit gang. There aren't literal vampires. No, there are no vampires as far uh, as we know. Fouillard was very uh, influential on the surrealists. And uh, the actress who played uh, Irma Vep, uh, the, uh, the the lead in Les Vampires, ran with the Surrealists. So that's another uh, sort of connection between uh, pulp culture and art culture. And before we just continue on spinning out our cultural references, it's time to uh, stick ourselves to the contents of this next segment, which lies just on the other side of this exciting commercial message. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more standing right next to Ken's time machine, which of course is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to hurtle Ken back into history, where he uh, bends, folds, spindles, sometimes mutilates it, and sometimes just takes a look at it, has a vodka, and then continues on his way. And this time, we have uh, yet another time request from a uh, a time patron or a Patreon backer, if, if you insist on being uh, you know technical about it. And that's Mike Marlowe, and he asks, what purpose was served by Boston's Great Molasses Flood of 1919? Now, unlike some of our other questioners, Mike is not directly accusing you of precipitating a horrible disaster in which uh, 25 people were killed and 150 were injured. He's just implying Very that somebody, <laughs> somebody behind the scenes made something happen. So it could be 
presumably the actions of uh, any number of members of Time Incorporated's rogue gallery, you know, the, the Chrono Lizards, the uh, uh, Time Vampires, uh, Tara Reed, could be any of it them. Could be any of them. And I guess we're going to find out which one of them it is. Right. Uh, but before we start that, uh, I, as usual, we need the story. Before we get to the story behind the story, we need the story in front of the story. And that begins on January 15th, 1919, with a big storage vat full of molasses that is uh, waiting to turn into rum. Uh, but uh, there's an unfortunate chemical reaction uh, caused by a sudden increase in the temperature there in January in Boston. And suddenly there's a sound uh, like machine gun going off. And that's the rivets on this big vat popping. And Ken, you want to take the story from there? Okay. On uh, January 15th, 1919, you've, you've set the, the tone admirably. It turns out that when you pour warm molasses into uh, a cold tank that is full of cold molasses, you uh, create a temperature inequality that makes a untested molasses tank collapse. And indeed it did. It fell in and uh, 2.3 million gallons of molasses flooded out. And weirdly enough, the molasses did not flow toward the molasses factory. It flowed away from the molasses factory uh, inland. And when it did that, it knocked down uh, a, a couple of dozen buildings. As you mentioned, it killed 25 people. It injured many, many more. It turns out that being trapped in molasses in January is a terrible thing to have happen to you. Uh, it and, took... and being trapped in anything that creates a 20-foot-high wave that yeah. travels at 35 miles per hour. Just sort it of doesn't does matter what the liquid is. Regular old bashing damage. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other thing that happens is because um, this uh, goo gets up in the atmosphere because of the collapse, you inhale it. And when you inhale sticky, uh, non-fluid material, guess what? It gets in your lungs and you have coughing fits and you have problems breathing. You have any number of other uh, bad uh, activities. Yes, you're not supposed to have your lungs filled essentially with glue. That's no, uh, it's not. Turns out that's uh, that's counterintuitive. Yeah, there was a three year lawsuit over the uh, process, and the company uh, that made the molasses, the the U.S. Uh, I think the company that made the tank, United States Industrial Alcohol, was the guys that made the tank, and they said it wasn't our fault. It was anarchists. Anarchists blew up the tank. And they showed that they'd gotten threatening letters from anarchists and that there'd been a previous attempt on a different USIA facility. And uh, the only thing missing was literally any evidence whatsoever that the tank was uh, collapsed by human action as opposed to bad tank design. Right. And, and of course, saying that anarchists did it then it would be the same thing as saying that ISIS did it now. Yes. Well, um, uh, with the difference that there were considerably more anarchist attacks in America in 1919 than there were ISIS attacks in America right. in 2017. There's more foundation to that nonsense than yes. there would be to, to doing that today. But in this specific case, it it probably it pretty much was not true. It was um, a, uh, a structural failure in the tank, and um, uh, they they eventually had to pay out a big old lawsuit to uh, the the survivors in a class action lawsuit, which was very early in the history of, of class action law. So that would be one of the effects is that um, uh, class action law takes a, takes a jump. The other thing is you can't build a giant molasses tank without having a civil engineer look at it. That's another thing that they decided right. they would do in Boston. Good for them. But this does not, so far, this does not sound like the sort of things that the chrono lizards would engineer as an attempt to have a nope. greater regulatory uh, authority. And I don't think it was the chrono lizards, um, but, I think that um, when you look at the map of what got flooded, you notice that the flood runs across Commercial Street and right up to, or perhaps even onto, the Copps Hill Burying Ground. And if you are a devotee of the minor New England historian Howard Phillips Lovecraft, you know that the Copps Hill Burying Ground is a haunt of ghouls. Now, I'm not going to say that the Copps Hill Burying Ground is a haunt of ghouls, but I am going to say that the tunnels that Lovecraft mentions running from Copps Hill out to other places in the North End, including many warehouses, some of which were also destroyed by the flood, may have been full of any num number of ill-doers. And they may have been anarchists, they may have been chrono-lizards, who can say who they were? They may have uh, been rubbery and had long snouts and make meeping noises. They could have been snouted meepers of some unknown sort. They could have been any number of people. 
And I think that probably what happened is someone saw the, the gathering of these figures, did not know what to do in the moment and thought, I'll just drown them out with a fluid. And the handy fluid was molasses. Now, oh, no, Ken. I'm beginning to see what the, this isn't a Ken's time machine situation at all. Oh, yeah. These are player characters who did this, aren't they? Yes. This is, this is Ken sees player characters. This is exactly a player character scenario in which someone says, how about that tank full of molasses? How stable does that look? And the answer right. is, well, you know, you can set a bomb, but then people will be, you know, looking for you. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that, but I'll bet we can use magic or some other methodology to make the, um, uh, tank looked like it collapsed from within or maybe oh jeez oh, ken i just did these player characters did they start off in purest mode until they saw the molasses tank and then suddenly go into pulp mode despite what the gm prep may have been that someone said well i've made my preparedness check i have a, a white phosphorus grenade that would probably rapidly increase the internal temperature of the molasses and the particulate phosphorus left behind would not be detectable in 1919. And, uh, the poor GM had to accept the, probably the result of the, of the, of the MOS that there would be a grenade there and, uh, had to cross off the, the lengthy purest hunt through the tunnels under Copse Hill burying ground on the thing they were going to do that day. And then the tank pours on and the, the GM got their revenge by, uh, describing in detail the human tragedy that resulted from the player characters attempting to drown out uh, uh, rubbery meepers or other subterranean denizens of Cops Hill Burying Ground. With uh, with sanity rolls or uh, stability losses or shock cards, shock all, cards around. all around. So, I guess the real question is, obviously this is the uh, a reality backlash wave mm-hmm. that caused somebody's Trail of Cthulhu game to immunitize in our reality yeah and and that's obviously where you come in mm-hmm. uh, so what was the time operation that had this uh, extremely unfortunate side effect the time operation there um also in the Thank neighborhood goodness, this is a ken's time machine segment once yes. more uh, the in also in that neighborhood is paul revere's house and what i had to do was go get something that paul revere had made uh, he was, as we all know, a silversmith, a printer. He had a number of, of extra hobbies besides riding around and warning people about the hated British. And in the course of his working on various uh, propagandistic bulletins and broadsheets, there may or may not have been a very clear image of an employee of Time Incorporated helping out at the Battle of Lexington. And obviously you can't be leaving that stuff lying around. So I had to go back and, and, and did this employee have like a Captain America t-shirt? And he like may a, have had a Captain America t-shirt. Okay. He may or may not have been drunk. You know, <laughs> you can't tell that from a broadsheet. Yeah. That, that, that object in his hand isn't necessarily a vodka tonic. No, it, it could have been any kind of clear beverage. <laughs> it's <was> probably <laughs> health giving water. <laughs> Like Molly Pitcher. Yeah, and the water wasn't safe at that time. No, so. yeah, you can't be drinking that water. You have to put quinine in it. That's just yeah. straight up, you know, that's medical science. Exactly. So getting the, 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 the a broadsheet unprinted was not super hard, but it turned out, of course, that the original plates were left in his house. And just to make double sure that no one can make the broadsheet that never got printed from the plates, it was necessary for me to go to Paul Revere's house in 1919, find the plate, and uh, wander off with it. And it is probably the, as you say, the the the, the uh, reality backlash of my repeated appearances at Paul Revere's house, and in my defense, the man could make a hot buttered rum. Right. Riding the countryside to warn of uh, redcoats, Nothing to his hot buttered rum skills. Well, you've got to warm yourself up before you exactly. go out in the cold uh, to warn people about red coats. Exactly. Red and coat warning 101. The, the fact that hot buttered rum has molasses in it, who can say? Uh, well, there there is a certain uh, synchrony of detail involved in, in any backlash effect. Exactly. And I think so that is So this is not just we're... a reality backlash. It's a reality backlash as a result of the veil out. From a previous yet another operation. operation. Yes. Which is why, as I always try and tell them, just, just leave it for Charles Fort. You know, you don't need a veil out. Veil outs are overrated, but I don't make policy. I just carry it out. Right. Um, and so is there a chance that they're going to send you back at some point to just warn those guys about the effect of uh, mixing, uh, hot 
and cold molasses. It's on the docket, right? It's it's in the queue. There's a there's an action item number open, and whenever I call and say, "Hey, how about the molasses flood?" They're like, "Have you fixed the Titanic yet?" And I'm like, "Yeah." So there's a lot of stuff ahead of it, is is what I'm saying. Right. Well, it's just typical typical freelancer stuff. There's always you know, projects that you're talking about possibly doing in the future with your clients. And, exactly. Uh, uh, well, so if uh, anybody wakes up one morning and there's uh, just keep checking Wikipedia. And if the uh, molasses flood gets moved to the uh, fictional events section, uh, then you'll know what happened. Or to a path-breaking Trail of Cthulhu adventure. Uh, exactly. Then you will indeed know what happened. Right. Uh, well, on that note, I think uh, we can escape uh, the wave of molasses is coming our way like an oncoming Shoggoth uh, by uh, making our athletics rolls and uh, spending a bunch of athletics points. And that way we will survive to bring you yet another podcast episode next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Pour out some molasses for the lost alongside such patrons as... Sean Kraus. Darren Dumay. Andrew Collins. Horatio Rutkowski. And the Redacted Files podcast. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff.